Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of organizations is hosting a national virtual event today and Sunday on the 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon, longtime advocate for downwinders, is a featured speaker uh, today. Uh, we will be talking with Mary Dixon for the hour following the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden says if he's elected, he won't stand in the way of prosecuting President Trump. NPR's Lulu Garcia-Navarro was part of a team from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and the National Association of Black Journalists who interviewed Biden. Biden was careful to say he would not ask for the president to be prosecuted, but he also said he would not stand in the way of his DOJ if that is what it chose to do. Look, the Justice Department is not the president's private law firm. The attorney general is not the president's private lawyer. I will not interfere with the Justice Department's judgment of whether or not they think they should pursue the prosecution of anyone that they think has violated the law. In addition to multiple investigations into Trump and his businesses by New York State, the Justice Department has also been presented with allegations of illegal activity by the president. Lulu Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Washington. A new national poll from NPR Ipsos finds there's overwhelming concern from teachers about returning in person to classrooms this fall. NPR's Anya Kamenetz reports. 77% of K-12 teachers are worried about risking their own health, and two-thirds say they would prefer to teach primarily remotely this fall. But teachers have concerns about teaching online. More than four out of five say it will widen learning gaps, and the same number are worried about forming ties with students they've never met when online classes begin this fall. The vast majority of teachers are dealing with uncertainty as the new school year begins and districts announce shifting plans. Just 11% of teachers said in the poll that their school district's plan for the fall was finalized and clear. Anya Kamenetz, NPR News. The U.S. Air Force has a new chief of staff, U.S. Air Force General Charles Q. Brown. NPR's Tom Bowman says Brown is the first African-American to lead a military service. The general is known as CQ. He's an F-16 pilot. And back in June, following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police, he put together an emotional video about his life as an African-American man and military officer. I'm thinking about my Air Force career, where I was often the only African-American in my squadron, or as a senior officer, the only African-American in the room. I'm thinking about wearing the same flight suit with the same wings on my chest as my peers, and they being questioned by another military member, are you a pilot? Brown also served in the Middle East, where he's credited with accelerating the fight against the Islamic State. His top enlisted advisor will be Master Sergeant of the Air Force Joanne Bass, the first woman in the job. Tom Bowman, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrials are up 10 points at 27,212. The Nasdaq is down more than 6 points at 10,992. You're listening to NPR News. It's four minutes past nine o'clock. This is Utah News. Pandemic-related stress can have a negative impact on mental health, and many are worried this could lead to more suicides. UPR's Harley Barnes reports on what resources are available to Utahns. The Herald Journal's Cat Webb contributed to this report. During these times, people are unsure where they can turn to for resources concerning mental health and suicide prevention. And so I think just letting people know there's the Utah Strong Recovery Project, which is all geared towards people who have been affected mentally and emotionally by COVID-19. 
Charity Jensen is a health educator with the Bear River Health Department and says the suicide rate in Utah for the year is slightly higher than last year at this time. According to Jensen, the best way to raise suicide awareness is to be open and honest as a community and provide information about health and resources. Utah Strong is a program in the state that is run under the Department of Human Services. The program receives funding to provide crisis counseling and emotional support for people recovering from various disasters. Jess Walker, a crisis counselor with the program, says this year's disaster is the COVID-19 pandemic. The last couple weeks, what I have heard from others on my team is that our state hotline has been extremely active and busy the whole time. According to Walker, the counselors for the program have a lot of prior experiences with social work and counseling. Walker says a big contributing factor to suicidal thoughts may be general background stress from the pandemic, as well as what it has caused for jobs and financial strain. And the Utah Strong Hotline is open to anyone struggling emotionally or mentally in any capacity. More details about the hotline are available on upr.org. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Harley Barnes. A North Logan teenager was among 39 performers to advance on the television show America's Got Talent. Kennedy Dodds played the guitar and sang an original song. That's Utah News. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of organizations is hosting a national virtual event today and Sunday on the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to commemorate the survivors of nuclear weapons and production. The event is called Still Hair, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy, and will include highlights from local events, stories from survivors, and look toward a future free from nuclear threats. Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon, a longtime advocate for downwinders and the playwright of the play Exposed, will be a featured speaker today at 3.15 uh, in the afternoon. You can view this event, which is ongoing all day today, and will be ongoing on Sunday as well, by going to the website hiroshima-nagasaki75.org slash events. Scroll down a bit and click on the YouTube event. Our guest for the hour today is Mary Dixon. I ask everybody... I ask everybody I have on these days how how you're doing with the pandemic. What what what, what changes oh do you gosh. make with the pandemic? Okay, it's getting very it's getting very tiresome very fast. <laughs> it's like you know if I can be outside I'm fine, but since it's been so hot lately, I have just been lying under my swamp cooler. <laughs> it makes yeah. me very lazy. Yeah, that yeah. sounds familiar to me as well. Well, and because of the pandemic, uh, I assume the the conference we're talking about probably would have been in person, but uh, but but it's a right. uh, but it's electronic. Yeah, they, it's it's all virtual. They've been working on it for a long time. They they've been coordinating 163 groups around the country and trying to set everything up and. They had to do a virtual because of, of course, the pandemic. You can't be in person. So it's all virtual. Um, I actually pre-recorded my bit because I didn't want to run into any technical difficulties the day of. They're on a really tight schedule. So uh, it, it will be virtual, which means more people will get to see it, which that's on the plus side. 
Yeah, that's that's is the upside, and I've heard that from other event organizers. That 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 is the advantage of more people probably uh, participate. Uh, so that this uh, the hashtag is still here, right? Seventy five years of right. shared nuclear legacy of, of shared nuclear legacy, right? Right. And so this is seventy fifth anniversary um, to uh, today. Uh, Thursday of uh, Hiroshima, right? And then on Sunday, it's the That's 75th right. anniversary of Nagasaki. That's right, and then on Sunday the 9th, it's the anniversary of Nagasaki. Right, right. It's hard to believe it's been 75 years. And I, I guess one of the highlights of this conference, one of the things they're trying to impress on people is that we are still here. Survivors are still here. Nuclear weapons are still here. Um, so there's there's still much work to be done as far as containing the nuclear threat. Uh, and so we'll get into this as we, as we go along, uh, but there's uh, the Trump administration has proposed, um, you know, ramping up nuclear testing. So it is this yes. very, very timely yes. topic, unfortunately. Uh, so I want to, uh, you, you did a recent op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, right. It was, it was titled, Let There Be No More... Hibakusha. Uh, is how you pronounce it. What, what's, what, yeah. what, what are Hibakusha? Let, let me explain that. Um, I'll just start with saying that, like, 15 years ago, I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, and some other Japanese cities with American University's Nuclear Studies Institute. Uh, it was the 60th anniversary commemoration, which was huge in Hiroshima, but I spoke at a university in Kyoto, Ritsumeikan, um, and a woman was there who named Coco. She came up to me afterwards, and, you know, she had been an infant when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and had survived. She is featured in John Hersey's book of the same name. But she came up to me in tears and told me that I was an American Habakusha, and that's the Japanese word for survivors of the bomb. And it was interesting that she called me that, and here was this woman who had such sympathy for me and my story. Um, but I am, I guess, a Bakasha because I survived the atomic bombs that were exploded here in America by our own government during the Cold War, all in the guise of protecting us. They exploded 935 nuclear bombs at the Nevada test site. All of them were powerful than the ones that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all during those years of testing, I don't know if um, a lot of your viewers may remember this, they would tell us there is no danger. They even printed up a little booklet telling us that we shouldn't be bothered by reports of Geiger counters going crazy and that we were active participants in this nation's program of nuclear testing. Um, they covered up and denied and minimized the danger from that radioactive fallout for decades, for decades. And so, of course, a lot of us here in America <clears throat> just grew up thinking that, uh, like the old Mormon hymn would tell us, all is well, all is well, you know, if we were safe. So we really had no way of knowing that the radioactive debris in those towering mushroom clouds could devastate families across this country. And, you know, Utah was especially hard hit. There, there's a map, League that Richard Miller has in his book, Under the Cloud, The Decades of Nuclear Fallout. And that map shows where fallout went when it was picked up by the jet stream. That's how it got carried all the way across America. And 
And I carry that map around to show people wherever I go because if you look at that map, that is the most shocking thing you could show people to drive home the point that it wasn't just St. George, it wasn't just southern Utah, it was the whole country, and definitely it was all of Utah. On his map, Utah's pretty much totally blacked out. But you see that ink spreading all the way across the Midwest, which is where a lot of our food was grown. You see it all the way in upstate New York and into Canada. So when you look at where fallout was carried across this country and how it rained out or snowed out on communities underneath, we have no idea how many downwinders there might be. Um, We know there are a lot. There was a study that came out in 2019 in um, a journal of economic history. It was a researcher from the University of Arizona, and he concluded that probably 500,000 Americans had died, mostly in the Midwest and the East, as a result of contaminated, fallout-contaminated agriculture. Um, So when you start looking at, at the story, it's so much bigger than most people realize. Uh, it's so much more widespread than most people ever understood. Uh, and, and that's kind of been a lot of my work all these years, is to let people know that, no, this wasn't just something that hit southern Utah. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you, your story, you, you grew up in Salt Lake, I think, right? Right. I grew up in Salt Lake um, on, the can- on the rim of Cam- uh, Parley's Canyon, and I remember after I got thyroid cancer, um, and that was when I, that was in 85, I started keeping a list of all the people in this five-block area neighborhood I grew up in on the Canyon Rim, and the numbers of people who had cancers and tumors and, and other fallout-related illnesses, and that was soon at 54 people, and that's in five blocks. So we were definitely a cluster um, proving it gets to be pretty tricky business, but we do have some studies out there. There was uh, the National Cancer Institute did a study in 1997. It was a huge, many-paged, long study where they basically said that every county in the continental U.S. got some level of fallout from testing in Nevada. That's the entire continental U.S. Um, and they were only looking at one radioisotope, which is the iodine-131 that causes thyroid cancer, and that's just one of the fallout-related cancers. But that study also said that um, 212,000 lifetime cases of thyroid cancer disease could be linked to fallout. That's, that's a lot. So when you look at those studies and those numbers, and again, these are things not a whole lot of people know, but... Uh, you can go online and look up that Cancer Institute study, and they even have mapped the U.S. and color-coded it by how much fallout different areas got. And again, Utah, all of Utah, that's northern Utah, too. That's Salt Lake. That's Logan. We all we all got it. Sometimes we got more than some of the counties in the southern part of the state. Uh, that's amazing. And, and, and you, I, I think it is true. Uh, this is not all that well known. I think still in popular conception, downwinders, they're all southern Utah, maybe Nevada. Right, know. right, right. I, I can't tell you how many times when um, I'll 
people, I'll tell people in the downwinder, and they'll go, oh, I didn't know you grew up in St. George. And that's when I pull out the map. I say, no, no, no. I grew up in Salt Lake, but we got as much sometimes as Southern Utah. Um, yeah, there are other studies. There was uh, a director of radiological health at the University of Utah, and there was even one above, it was an, um, an underground test, because some of those leaked and spewed these huge mushroom clouds into the sky and got picked up by the jet streams. But that one test, it was called Bainberry, that one rained out pretty hard over um, like Brigham City and Logan and Salt Lake. And that one, the researcher said that 55,000 kids would likely develop some sort of thyroid issues from that test. Um, his, his research, sometimes they didn't want to bring that out. And in fact, when he tried to warn and say, you've got to tell people not to drink the milk, they just lowered, the government lowered the acceptable level of radiation in milk. And by the time they pulled it, it was eight days later, which didn't do any good because the half-life of I-131 is about eight days. Mm. So again, there was just a systematic program of covering up um, in fact, I, I have these Atomic Energy Commission minutes from the 50s when testing was first starting. They make for very dramatic reading, by the way. But there was one point where one of the commissioners said, um, you know, we're starting here reports of livestock and people dying. And the other commissioner said, nothing is going to get in the way of testing. Nothing. And then he proposed that what they needed was a, quote, judicious handling of public information, which, again, is basically propaganda. So that's where you got the there is no danger and the little booklets and films they made. I mean, who doesn't remember Duck and Cover? Do you remember mm-hmm. those? I do. I do. Where, um, yeah. Yep. Bert the Turtle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Duck yep. and Cover. Duck and Cover. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as, that's been... As oh, if, as if that's going to protect you. That you know, I, oh, I, no, I know. Like, uh, even as I know. A, even as a kid, I wondered about that. Yeah. Uh, getting under my desk is that oh, gonna, really going to help me? Right. I know. I did too. I thought, wait a minute, putting a newspaper over my head or getting under my desk? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a much more trusting and naive time. To be really honest about it all, it was it was a different time, and we believed authority in those days. We. You know, if they told us something was safe, we said, oh, oh well, I guess I'm okay. And this... But yeah, uh, there, there are... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, now, there are cases. There was one test in um, 1953, and they named them all. This one was named Simon, and it got picked up by the jet stream, and it collided with the worst thunderstorm in 100 years over upstate New York, rained out all over Troy, Albany, and Schenectady. And it was actually measured by researchers at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute who tracked it down to the test site. And they knew that that test had had done that. Well, there's a whole book that was written about that one test called A Good Day Has No Rain uh, by a journalist in Albany. And he's since written another book, a follow-up, looking at how many people developed um, Hodgkinson's lymphoma as a result of that, how an entire graduating class that he followed later died of that disease. So, I mean, there, there are health repercussions. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, this is old history. This happened a while ago because testing went on from 1951 to 1992, and it was actually George H.W. Bush who put a halt to it. 
Um, so that went on for 40 years almost. And people think, oh, that's so long ago. Certainly we're all okay. But, you know, so, this is the, the hard thing with radiation exposure. Some of those cancers take 20, 30, 40 years to show up. So if you've got that kind of lag time, that's another reason people have trouble connecting it to the testing because so many years have passed from exposure to diagnosis. And then, of course, people, like their cancers return. Um, Preston Truman, who's up in Malad, Idaho, who's done so much on this issue and knows more than probably any other downwinder, um, you know, he battled various cancers as a teen and now as a man in his 60s, he's had one of his, a cancer has returned, or a new cancer shown up. And so people are still suffering the health effects, and a lot of those health effects are lingering. Um, and then if you look at genetic damage, that can be passed on to other generations. So, and that's another point I try to make. We are still living with the effects of fallout. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon is my guest for the hour. She's a longtime advocate for downwinders and is a featured speaker at an event is happening today and Sunday. Uh, still here, 75 years of shared nuclear legacy is including highlights for local events, stories from survivors, uh, look toward a future free from nuclear threats. Uh, it's on the anniversaries of uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiroshima, the anniversary, 75th anniversary is uh, today, and uh, Nagasaki's 75th anniversary on Sunday. Uh, Mary Dixon will be giving a presentation 315 this afternoon. Best way to get to uh, that event, which is on YouTube, is to uh, go to Hiroshima-Nagasaki75.org slash events, and then click on the Watch the Event on YouTube uh, button there. We'll have more with Mary Dixon following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Healthy in Utah. As people return to work, school, and other activities, washing hands, wearing a mask, and maintaining safe physical distance can help keep everyone healthy. More at utah.org healthy. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 8 of Debunked. I'm Tim Light, and I'm joined by Garth Mullins, Dr. Lauren Prest, and Savannah Ely. The myth we're debunking today in one minute is methadone and suboxone are no different than heroin. The biologic relationship, once it's settled, it's settled. And having access to medication without legal repercussions is key. The biggest difference is the law. You know, fundamentally, these are both opioids, but one's illegal and can kill you in an overdose crisis right now. The other is prescribed to you by a doctor, but really at the root of it, they share a lot of the same molecular properties. So the difference is in how society reacts to these things. You know, I think if we're going to show anybody in recovery anything, no matter what pathway they're on, it should be compassion and support, not stigma. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode 8 of Debunked, released on Wednesday, August 12th. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. A coalition of organizations is hosting a national virtual event today and Sunday on the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to commemorate the survivors of nuclear weapons and production. It's called Still Here, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy. 
Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon is a longtime advocate for downwinders. She's written a play on the subject called Exposed. Uh, she's a featured speaker at this event. Uh, her presentation is at 3.15 this afternoon. She's our guest for the hour uh, right now. You mentioned President Truman. Uh, I was struck by a quote. You did, this is an op-ed you did in the, in the Tribune, a separate one. Um, yeah. You say, you, he used to say they're just waiting for uh, all of us to die. That oh, this, this oh is... my gosh, he did. Because, I mean, we've been fighting for the expansion of RECA forever. Um, it, and, and that's what he would always say. He'd say they're just waiting for all of us to die. And so many downwinders I know and I worked with on this. They've died. I mean, Michelle Thomas, who was such a spitfire in St. George, uh, she died a year ago, May. Um, a lot of the people I've worked with have died. And I remember Darlene Phillips, who's been bountiful and worked on this really hard, too. She ended up dying. And um, she told me once, she said, you have to keep working on this because the rest of us are too sick. And so I've always felt an incredible responsibility to just keep speaking out. And it gets least. Sometimes it's incredibly hard. There are times I just think I can't do this anymore. I can't hear any more stories because, you know, the more I talk about it, the more different downwinders will call me to talk to me and tell me their stories. And I mean, their stories are absolutely heartbreaking. I feel like I got off easy um, with thyroid cancer, but some of them, their stories just do me in when I hear them. I guess I'm too big an empath. So it's um, it's hard work, and it's frustrating, too, that I, I always remember what Preston said. He said, our victories are always temporary. They always have been. He goes, we've got to keep our pitchforks sharpened. And um, it's every time we think we're out of those nuclear woods, uh, somebody proposes resuming testing, and, and here's this administration proposing resume testing. And one Department of Defense official said that they could be ready to do a test within months. Mm. And this is really, really troubling to me. And, and as I said in that iPad, I just find it utterly immoral. We'd even consider it knowing what we know. But I, this is what makes me really sadly. I think that a lot of our elected representatives simply do not know the, the cost of nuclear testing. They don't know the human cost. They don't know the story. They, they don't know. Um, I went once with three other women. We went back to Washington. This is when I think the Bush administration was talking about resume testing. And we took Miller's map, little cards of that map, and left them in every office. And we had one, it was Chuck Hagel, one of his people, one of his staff that we met with, who had actually been on a nuclear sub. And he said to us, you know, I know about this. He goes, I would venture most of them don't. You've, you've got to, like, tell them. You've got to leave these cards. And um, so there's, there's just this constant education that needs to be done, I think, because I really think people don't know it. And like I said, it's it's not something that's taught in American history books either. Mm. Is it, uh, what are the... I, I assume the arguments back in the day with the well. First of all, let me ask you: Was this a case, at least early on, of the government not knowing uh, what the effects would be, um, or I or was it like was it lying from the beginning? Mm -hmm. They lied from the beginning. They lied from the beginning, which is so hard to reconcile. Um, 
back in 51, there was, after one of the first tests, the film in Rochester, New York, was fogging. They tracked it back to test at the test site. Well, the test site said, and they threatened to sue, Kodak threatened to sue. And they said, well, we will give you advance warning so you can protect the film. People were never given that advance warning. We were assured everything was okay. We never got that warning. Now, they knew early on what it was doing. Um, they, they lied. They covered up. If, if you read these Atomic Energy Commission minutes, they're, they're very damning. Mm. Um, and those only were, I think, released under the Clinton administration. So they, were, they weren't declassified for quite a while. Was this then a conscious trade-off? This is national security? Yes, yes. It was mm-hmm. all national security. It was a Cold War. We didn't want Russia to win. We had to build bigger, better bombs. And, and you know, I, I had students living with me from um, other countries for quite a while while they went to the university. And they knew about my work, and I dragged them to my play and everything. And they, <clears throat> one of them said to me, said, I just don't understand. Why did they have to do that many tests? That's so many tests. I mean, it's kind of unfathomable that there were that many tests conducted. And I said to him, you know, that is such a good question, and it's one I've never been able to answer. Like, what didn't they know at test 926, or what new thing did they learn that they didn't know at test 924? Um, I used to say it's all part of the military-industrial complex, and it's like, I hate to say it, but kind of boys with toys. Let's, Let's keep playing with these let's make a bigger boom and i don't think there was really a defense purpose to them Mm. or a deterrent purpose i mean we've got the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world and even now with with this administration saying they want to resume it it's there's really not a military purpose there just isn't uh and a lot of that's kind of the consensus among international arms control experts there's no need or, or any strategic or military value for us to develop new nuclear warheads or conduct new nuclear weapons tests. Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists just called it abhorrent that we would even consider doing this again. Mm. What uh, is, what is so the... that, that makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the Trump administration saying? Uh, are, 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 you know, resuming tests? I imagine there's, you know, the, the rationale is the national security, perhaps. But the, the question I want to ask is, uh, is there any assurances uh, are, you know, that we can do tests safely now? Is, are, are, is there any talk oh, like that? Yeah, that's and I've heard that. I've heard that one. That's what they say. Well, we can do them safely now. And you know what I say? I say anytime this government uses the word safe, with nuclear weapons, my hackles go up. I do not trust them to be able to do anything safely. I don't know if you remember back in, I think it was 2007, this divine strike where they were going to do a non-nuclear test that simulated a nuclear test, and they called it divine strike. Uh, but it was going to blow up dirt that was still radioactive, and they, they kept saying, well, oh, you know, it'll be no more harmful than sun. And, and But then it was almost like they were gleeful about this when they said, there will be mushroom clouds over Las Vegas again. And I thought, that's nothing to brag about. Um, that one, though, thanks to a lot of activists working against it, and thanks to, uh, I think it was ABC News here, was it Channel 2 or Channel, it was wherever Terry Wood was, was at at the time, and he did an 
on-air editorial as an anchor, it, it ended up getting him fired. But he told people he could not see letting this happen again and urged them to write letters and then took 11,000 letters to officials at the test site. But that test was stopped. People did stop that test. We're not quite as naive as we used to be. Um, but, you know, they'll always use some some boogeyman. Um, you know, it was terrorism back in the Bush era, and now it's they're saying we have to show China our strength. Uh, we have to show these other nuclear countries our strength. Well, we've got the strength, and our military experts will tell you we've, we've, we've got the deterrent. So there's really no reason for it. I think a lot of it is posturing. But when downwinders hear that that might happen again, I mean, we know what the help costs are of that and and for that to happen again. And, and, and one thing that is really ironic is that, all right, here we are with two bills right now. There's one in the House and one in the Senate to expand compensation for downwinders. So we're talking about creating new downwinders when we still haven't compensated the last generation of downwinders. And, and that Radiation Exposure Compensation Act uh, was always incredibly limited, and it was done that way on purpose. It was a political boundaries were drawn around this narrow little circle of, of counties, mostly rural counties in southern Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And if you lived and could prove you lived in those counties during certain years and got one of 18 kinds of cancer, you were eligible for $50,000 in compensation. Well, $50,000 does not cover one chemo treatment. Um, and so they have. we've been trying to get that expanded. Um, Senator or Representative Lujan out of New Mexico and our Ben McAdams and others have signed on to the bill in the House, which would add the entire state of Utah, because now it's only counties in southern Utah. Uh, it would add all of Utah. It would add Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and New Mexico, as well as Guam. Um, and then there's a House bill that was introduced by Senator Crapo in Idaho. And same thing, um, that one would add Idaho, Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, Nevada, and all of Utah, as well as Guam. So those are right now sitting, waiting for action. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that they'll go somewhere. I know that only Ben McAdams has signed on to those bills here. Not the rest of our congressional delegation are the representatives. None of them have signed on to it. Neither of our senators have signed on to the Crapo bill. And they are both bipartisan bills. They've got quite a few co-sponsors at this point. Um, but our guys have not signed on for either of those. Which, which is sad, and I'm really glad to see McAdams kind of taking the lead on this, and he's also actively trying to stop the resumption of testing, and we're not hearing that from our other representatives, um, which is, to me, incredibly disappointing. I think they just don't understand how their constituents have suffered. So maybe, maybe we need to send them the map. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, how do you move that needle? It's. Uh, do you... I don't know. I don't know. I have um, met, I and others have met with um, Senator Romney's uh, staff person here, and he was, you know, when I showed him all the maps and everything, he was, I mean, frankly, shocked. 
that that's how far it went. So, I mean, I hold out hope for Senator Romney. I know Senator Lee, his father, who was the Attorney General of Utah, Rex Lee, was very instrumental in helping downwinders. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe we push him from that angle. It's. I just wish that they would look at all the evidence and all the facts and listen to constituents. Because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's not... It's not a partisan issue. That's what gets me. I mean, Republicans have always been part of stopping nuclear testing, and it's it's bipartisan. Fallout fell on Republicans and Democrats. So it's I, I don't see it as a partisan issue at all. Yeah, you, you point out George H.W. Bush halted nuclear testing in 1992. Ronald Reagan yeah. wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons. Right, right. He wanted to eliminate them. So it's it's not a partisan thing, and I'm kind of getting the feeling that people think it is, that they think they've got to support uh, Trump and say they're for nuclear testing. I'm not sure they really know what it did. And I, and this is the, the uh, thing, too, that I've noticed. Whenever I speak about it, I used to speak to a lot of classes and different groups, and people would all start talking afterwards about a relative of theirs who had had cancer and one of the, you know, possible fallout-related ones. And they had no idea. I even once was speaking in St. George, and there were uh, students. And um, this one student said, gosh, my grandmother and grandfather died of cancer, and my mom had it. Do you think they might be downwinders? I'm like, are they from St. George? Yeah. I said, "Uh, yes, I think they could be downwinders, and they're all eligible for compensation because they lived in the right county at the right time. Hmm. Um, But, you know, so there's a whole generation even – at what was the epicenter that doesn't realize what happened. You're listening to Utah Public Radio Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon. She's a longtime advocate for downwinders, and she's written a play on the subject called Exposed. Uh, she's a featured speaker today at 3.15 p.m. at an event that's ongoing today and Sunday. Uh, it's called Still Here, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy. That's highlighting uh, highlights uh, from uh, local events, uh, stories from survivors. And uh, this is on the occasion of the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima. That's today. And the uh, 75th anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki is on Sunday. Uh, the best way to get to that event is to go to the website HiroshimaNagasaki75.org slash events. Scroll down slightly, and then you can click uh, over to YouTube and uh, watch that event. It's ongoing today, and it'll be on Sunday as well. And as I mentioned, Mary Dixon's presentation is 3.15 this afternoon. We'll have more with Mary Dixon following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Utah Public Radio is adding some great programs to our schedule. Tune in soon for Both Sides of the Aisle, Climate One, Reveal, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, BBC's Outlook, LA Theater Works, Latino USA, BBC's News Hour, Alt Latino, The Brazilian Hour, BBC's People Fixing the World, Blues Before Sunrise, and BBC's World Book Club. Join us for these new to UPR programs beginning the week of August 17th. 
Support for the UPR-produced podcast Debunked is made possible by the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a national virtual event uh, happening today and Sunday. Uh, these happen to be the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so to commemorate uh, survivors of nuclear weapons and production, uh, still here, 75 years of shared nuclear legacy is including highlights from local events, stories from survivors, and looking toward a future free from nuclear events. Uh, Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon uh, who was recognized by the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility for her lifetime work on behalf of Downwinders, uh, is our guest today. She's giving a uh, uh, talk as a part of this event. Her talk's happening today at 3.15 uh, in the afternoon. Best way to get to the, those, those events today and Sunday is to go to the website, uh, which is hiroshima-nagasaki75.org slash events. Uh, scroll down slightly, and then there's a button called Watch the Event on YouTube. Click that, and you'll get to, to those events. Um, and uh, we reached the last segment now of my conversation with Mary Dixon. I want to move the discussion uh, to, to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You make yeah, the point, I've heard yeah. this before, that, um, uh, you know, as the nation who, the only nation so far who's, who's dropped uh, nuclear bombs, uh, that, right. that, that the U.S. has a special responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, I think we do have a special responsibility to to set things right. We we have a moral obligation. I mean, we're the only ones who ever used it, and and we used it in Japan. And then through the program of testing, what we did was essentially bomb our own people. Um, so I I really feel like we have this moral obligation to try and lead the world in stopping the nuclear threat. I, you know, we haven't been particularly good at treaties and other things. And um, I just feel like we owe it to the world. Um, it's, I mean, when you look at those cities and what happened, for me, anyway, being there, and especially at the time of commemorating this, was such an intense emotional experience. And I remember going to the um, the museum there's a, there's a museum in Hiroshima with remainders or things from that were bombed and the thing that got me Tom and that I just lost it seeing this was a burned bicycle and that one really got me and I was with the woman who had been a baby um, in Hiroshima when the bomb went off and that woman was comforting me I'm thinking we're the ones who devastated your city and you're comforting me because I was just so upset going to that museum. It was really hard. And I remember going out afterwards and sitting in the Peace Park there. And you've probably seen that picture of the metal dome that's all that was left of the city. That's all that was standing. And it's kind of become this iconic symbol now. So I'm sitting in that park. I'm watching these little school children in their uniforms walk by. And I just thought... There was a day, August 6th, in 1945, when they heard a plane overhead and they looked up 
and then oblivion. And that was just so upsetting to me to watch those school children and think back on that day. It's a re- I think all Americans should have to go to that city. They should have to go to Nagasaki. Um, and that, that those people are kind and welcoming to us was, to me, a sign of true forgiveness. Because I don't know if that happened here. We'd be quite so forgiving. Hmm. But just being there as part of that was intense. It was just intense. And the day of the commemoration, the children's choir is singing and at the end of the speeches. And, and I think every country was represented, but I don't, I don't know if the U.S. had a representative there. I can't remember. Um, but they released a thousand white doves. I mean, there were just so many moments being there and experiencing these commemorations that were just, incredibly seared into my memory I'll never I'll never forget them uh, what are the yeah. what it, it's in political terms what what are the Hibaksha uh, asking for and to nuclear weapons uh, denuclearization you know what? They, what are they? yes I think they're asking for that and I remember meeting a man um, in Nagasaki and the day before I should back up we'd been at a museum and Again, it was very troubling. And the one picture in that museum that really got me was a picture of a little boy whose back just looked like hamburger meat because he had been burned by radiation from that bomb. And the next day we went to hear this older gentleman speak. And, you know, everything had to be translated because he was speaking Japanese. And he unbuttoned his shirt and showed us all the huge... um, and you could actually see his chest beating through a really thin, his heart beating through a thin layer of skin. He had been through countless surgeries. And then he turned around to show us his back. He was the man who was that little boy. That one got me, too. That one got me. And afterwards, I just went up to talk to him. And um, he said, just, I said, what can we do? What can we do? And he said, go back to America and tell them never to let this happen again. He goes, that's what you can do. Hmm. Tell them never to let it happen again. I wonder what the response um, is. I'm sure you've heard the arguments, the Hibakusha have heard the arguments, uh, that defending President Truman's uh, decision to use these weapons, that it yeah. shortened the war, saved many lives. Uh, what, what's right, the, what's right. the response? Um, you know, that's so interesting you ask that, because um, Peter Kuznick, who is the head of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University and who I was with on this visit to Japan, he talked to us at length about why it was not necessary to bomb either city, how both of those, militarily, how what we were really doing was trying to scare the Russians that we had this powerful weapon and we could use it. Um, so his whole case, and he's written at length about it, but um, I've got some of his books. He's an amazing historian, but he's written a lot about it and says that it was mostly to scare the Russians. It wasn't to end the war. Hmm. Uh, but, the- you know, a lot of people will, will argue that, and they'll say, well, you know, we saved thousands of lives by doing this. Um and we probably killed more people firebombing Tokyo. But, yeah, I don't know. War is just 
a nasty, nasty thing and getting at what's right and what's moral and what's justified, I think is a really complicated business. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but anyone who's interested in that, I would say just Google Peter Kuznick, K-U-Z-N-I-K. Okay. All right. Uh, so this website, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75org uh, there's a... Uh, yeah. There, there's a... There's a uh, it's interesting, the, the, the title of this page is, is Resilience, and these are stories of, uh, of survivors. Uh, your story is included here. Um, and, and just to illustrate that this is not just Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's not just southern Utah... Uh, there are stories from people from right. Marshall Islands. Um, there are oh, uh, military yes. veterans, uranium workers. Oh, yes. I tell you, that whole circle of nuclear weapons, it wasn't just the use of it. It was then um, the production of the weapons, the testing of the weapons, the um, now disposal of the weapons. There's this whole nuclear chain that all along the way there are downwinders. I mean, I've met downwinders from Hanford. I've met downwinders from India, from China, from depleted uranium, from Chernobyl. Um, I mean, you look at all the ways people have been affected by this nuclear cycle, and that's something that really strikes me because there are so many victims of nuclear weapons. so many, and, and some of the atomic veterans, their stories are just horrifying. I was close to um, a man from Denver who was an atomic veteran, and he had been stationed in those trenches at the test site. They wanted to see what a bomb would do to soldiers and how they'd respond, And um, which to me was just incredibly immoral. They were guinea pigs, essentially. And, you know, he now has multiple myeloma and has written some lovely books, has gone to Hiroshima twice or three times um, and writes about that and his book called Folding Paper Cranes. Um, but yeah, I've met lots of victims. I was back in 2015, I was invited to speak at the International Conference on Victims of Nuclear Weapons, and that was in Hiroshima. So that was my second time there. And I listened to these presenters tell all these pieces of this story. And I just thought there are so many of us, so many of us around this world. Um, it was, again, it was, it was a really hard, hard time to spend in that country because I learned so much more about just the huge extent of this. And, and one thing that I, I learned listening to all these stories is that governments always lie they always minimize the danger, and they don't take responsibility for trying to make things right to those who suffer later. Um, and those were like my three big takeaways at that conference, and it was it was some kind of hard stuff, really hard stuff. I mean, there was a gentleman from India, and he had come to talk about disposing of nuclear waste and byproducts, and he had slides of these workers who were barefoot and walking through the stuff. And, and ah, there were just so many images from that conference that just stuck with me. I, I kind of wish I'd written more about it, or about it at all. Mm. It, was, it was kind of um, devastating, though, to learn all these things. Uh, what, what are you going to say in your, uh, uh, your, your, your talk, your part of this conference, which happens um, at well, your, your part, part happens at 315? Again, I mean, I just talk about 
being described as an American Habakkusha. I talked about my own story and, you know, how our government lied to us all these years and how far the testing went and how we were considered expendable. And, um, again, my message is mostly to talk about downwinders, American downwinders from the testing. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I go with it. Uh, one, one thing, there was um, one quote I just loved. There was a woman who wrote Half Lives and Half Truths, uh, and her name's Barbara Rose Johnson, and she always said the arms race didn't prevent nuclear war. Rather, it was a nuclear war. So it was a nuclear war that happened in several countries that bombed their own. I mean, Russia did it. China did it. Um, we did it. And, and and one thing that kind of was striking me about all this is that here we are facing COVID, this pandemic that I think is up to 155,000 dead in America. I think that's today's number. And I, I look at that and I think, okay, well, fallout from nuclear testing likely claimed more people than that. But no one warned us. And if we wore a mask, that wouldn't have saved us. Um and yet people aren't outraged. I just think, again, if, if downwinders got sick or died immediately after those explosions, it would have just been considered an absolute national catastrophe. But, you know, those health effects take a while to show up. And, you know, there are people always crying, prove it, prove it, prove it. Uh, so we've, we've faced some pretty tough stuff here. What, uh, what anyway, would you... That's basically what I'm talking about. Right, right, excellent. Not cheery stuff. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but uh, what if uh, if people want to get involved, what, what action would you suggest people take? You know what? I would say just educate yourself, educate yourself, and um, speak up. Like, tell other people what you learn. Um, call your representatives. Ask them where they stand on these issues. I know there's a resolution that's being likely drafted to be presented in the legislature. Um, and there's also, this, this was interesting too, our Western Governors Association, they wrote to the heads of like the Judiciary Committee and um, they said, you know, you ought to do the, expand comp- or, um, compensation for downwinders. So, I mean, there, there is some movement. I just think the more we let elected officials know the story, the better. I mean, I think it was back in 2005, maybe, that some of us went up to speak to the legislature, and I passed out the maps, and I thought, oh, they're never going to go for this resolution, for passing a resolution against resume testing. They're not going to do it. But you know what? I got through talking, and they all started telling their own stories. It didn't matter where they lived, you know. There was one from Tremont who talked about all the houses on his block where there were cancers. There was one from um, Southern Utah. I mean, Republican and Democrat, they were telling stories, and that resolution passed unanimously. But That was back in, I think, 2005. So it's like something you have to keep doing again and again and again because there's always a new crop of legislators and people representing us, so you just kind of have to keep them informed. It's it's hard to keep doing it over and over and still have people say, oh, did you grow up in southern Utah? Mm. Even my friends have asked me that. 
I didn't know you grew up in southern Utah. It's like, I didn't. I didn't. Salt Lake City. Let me show you this map. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's work that needs to be uh, done over and over again. We just have a couple minutes yeah. uh, left. Uh, I want to end with uh, what Mary Dixon's up to. You're you're retired from KUED, right? <laughs> I am. I'm retired. It's, it kind of was great preparation for COVID. Um, yeah, I... You know, I, I think, okay, well, now I really have time to work on this issue and get more involved and try and keep increasing public awareness. So I do that. And that play I wrote, Exposed, it's kind of, a, it's all about this issue. It's my story about me and my sister. My sister, by the way, died back in 2000. Um, now I have a younger sister who has cancer. Uh, so it's still, people are still getting it. Um, so getting the play it had some meetings here in right before the lockdown so march 10th there was a reading and february 24th there was a reading here and we had one all set to do in new york uh on may 20th and obviously that one got canceled because of covid hopefully it'll happen again um so just trying to get the word out however i can i spend a lot of time doing that and i spend time gardening and I have, this is what's really nice, I have a whole little flock of screech owls living in my backyard. Ah. <laughs> so I go out and talk to them every day. Oh, delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. They're so cute. There are a couple of little fledglings. They're just so cute, and they let you get pretty close, and they like to stay in the same place. So that's my COVID entertainment. <laughs> well, yeah. well, good. Well, I hope they'll hope be able to put on the, the play uh, once this thing settles down, and uh, good luck with everything. Yeah. Of course, we'll, we'll all be uh, tuned you. in to 315 as you're, you're part of the conference. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Okay. Well, Mary Dixon, it's been a pleasure thank to talk to you. you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I so appreciate it and everything you do. That's my conversation with Mary Dixon. Uh, she's a Salt Lake City writer, a longtime advocate for downwinders. She's participating uh, this afternoon in a national virtual event. It's called Still Here, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy. This is on the occasion of the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki today and Sunday, respectively. That event will be happening today and on Sunday as well. Best play, uh, way to get to that is to go to the website Hiroshima-Nagasaki75.org slash events. Uh, scroll down and click on the Watch the Event on YouTube button. And uh, that event is ongoing right now. Mary Dixon's uh, speech presentation is 3.15 this afternoon. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah.